Let's give it up for Evan. He's our worship intern. He's uh, that was just so talented, phenomenal. Thanks for serving with us today. We appreciate that, Evan. Yeah, that's great. Hey, uh, in the midst of what's going on this week and just everything, it just it just feels heavy, doesn't it? Um, and so that brings us to Hebrews chapter twelve, uh, beginning in verse two. It says, "Let us run." With endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I absolutely love this passage because it talks about this idea of running the race that is set before us, but the words right after are kind of those hinge words that just change everything in our lives. It says, run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. It makes me think of Peter as he's walking on water. Jesus is out there, and Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins to walk on water, and he's looking at Jesus, and then what happens? He looks away. He looks at the storm. He looks at the chaos. He looks at what could possibly happen in life, and what happens to him? He starts to sink. As things like the shooting in Texas, as things like the world around us, it's really easy to take our eyes off of Jesus, isn't it? And so we need to make sure that we continue to run the race that is set before us, but what makes all the difference is looking to Jesus. And so let's do that today. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we are in the the beginning stages still of the book of Acts. And it's funny I say beginning because we're six weeks into that. And usually we're kind of finishing our series, but we are heading just 28 weeks in this, all right? And so we're unpacking it week by week, looking the movement, looking at the development and the movement of the church, the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so hopefully uh, if you've missed any of the, the, the series or the chapters, whatever, they're all online. You can go and uh, listen to those. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 today. And before we get into that, in, in his book, called The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell writes about how small actions at the right time, the right place, with the right people can create a tipping point, or in other words, a movement. And this can happen with anything from a product to an idea or to a trend. He writes this. He says, a tipping point is a magic moment when a threshold is crossed and now there is momentum like there has not, like there was not before. Uh, how many of us have experienced tipping points in our life? Right? You look at some examples of tipping points. Very easily we see them in sports. I love watching sports and it gets down to the last, the end of the game. And there's always a tipping point that moves it one way or another. So in baseball, a specific player can have that clutch hit. And that can be the tipping point of the game, cause the momentum. I had a baseball coach when I was young that say, hey, like 49% of rallies happen with two outs in the inning, right? There was a tipping point that would happen there. The Browns are still waiting for their tipping point. (laughs) When you move or change jobs, it could be your tipping point. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. 
You look throughout history and we see different tipping points that have changed the course of this world from the assembly line to microwaves to computers, cell phones, GPS, and iPods. Rest in peace. And when it comes to church history, there are many tipping points that formed and changed the church forever. And the the beauty is, is when you look at the movement and the development of the early church, what happened then is our reality now. We've, We've kind of said that every single week so far. It's like what's happening here in the book of Acts has progressed to where we're sitting in these rows today, being a church together. We're following their example. And so in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see a vital tipping point in the history of the church that is absolutely immensely relevant for us today because it is still our reality, yours and mine. And so let's jump into Acts chapter 6. But before we do that, let's set the stage by looking at the end of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And it's going to be on the screens for you, but we highly encourage you to open your Bible or open your phone and have it in front of you. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42, it says, The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Can we just like stop there for a moment and just picture what's happening? In the the end of Acts chapter 5, the, the, the apostles are arrested and then beat because of Jesus. At that point, many of us would say, man, I don't know about this. And we'd walk kind of slowly out of the high council. But I always imagine these apostles, for some reason, just like jumping and like clicking their heels together because they're rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. And so just just. Keep that in mind as we're talking about what's going on here is that they, they have just been beat, they've been arrested, but yet they are leaving rejoicing. And then it goes on, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So a little more context here for you. At this point in the church, there were 12 apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent out. The apostles mentioned here are the ones who witnessed the resurrection, the resurrected Christ and who were commissioned by Jesus to proclaim and preach the word of, of Jesus. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And they're commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But at this point, they are still in Jerusalem. They're still right there in their hometown where Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. They receive the Spirit, and they've just been preaching and teaching the gospel there. And then at the end of chapter 5, after having been beat, they were told to stay quiet and to stop talking about Jesus. They were charged not to speak in their name, in his name. Did they stop? No, no. In fact, it almost seems like they kind of said, all right, we're going to step, step it up a notch. Because back then, it, honestly, a lot of people just went to the synagogues. They would read the scriptures and stuff like that. But instead of just saying, oh, they just continued to go to the temple and worship God, they also went house to house. And they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. 
They were being witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection. And in what Paul says in Romans 1, 16, they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. The high council says, stop. They said, there's no way we can do that right now. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one we are going to proclaim. And so this trial and beating was a tipping point in and of itself because it kind of sparked this evangelistic movement within Jerusalem. Now, what's very interesting is that this point in Acts, especially in Acts chapter 5, we see that the enemy is trying to suppress Jesus in any way possible. He's trying to suppress the movement that's happening by, first, uh, by corruption. And that's what Pastor, I think Jay was here last week. I was gone, so sorry for not knowing this. But Pastor Jay talked about this corruption where, where all of a sudden Ananias and Sapphira are trying to corrupt the church. So the enemy is trying to work his way into the church, corrupt it from the inside out. Did that work? Did Ananias and Sapphira bring the whole church down? No, God brought them down, Okay. They, they were struck dead in the moment. And so then the enemy is like, well, now what can I do? And so that led to them being persecuted or going through suffering. So the enemy is like, well, I can't ruin it from the inside out. Now I'm going to ruin it from the outside in. We're going to arrest them. We're going to beat them. And hopefully they'll stop talking about Jesus. But the, did that work? Absolutely not. They went from house to house. And then they continued to preach the gospel. Their corruption led to the suffering, but what did the suffering lead to? Well, it led to a few things. First, it produced endurance. We just talked about that in Hebrews. It produced endurance. It produced an inward fortitude in the apostles' lives to continue the commission that Jesus gave them. It produced character. It made them reliable witnesses to the resurrection, and it produced hope. It gave them grounds to know that this was all worth it. All of it. The arrest, the beatings, the persecution, the sufferings, it's worth it. It's worth it to continue the mission that Jesus has given them. This endurance, character, and hope motivated them to be bold and to be zealous for Jesus and the new life that is possible through him. And then we get to chapter 6, and we see that the enemy then has to shift gears one more time, and he has to try to stop Jesus in another way. And so as the apostles were boldly and zealously proclaiming the message of Jesus, an undercurrent of a problem began to surface, and it's the undercurrent of disunity. Disunity. There's nothing worse than experiencing disunity within a family, right? And that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read it here. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, so there's your tipping point, okay? So, so they, they were arrested, they were beat, and, but they didn't stop. They kept worshiping in the temple. They went house to house, and there you go. What happens? People, believers are being multiplied. Like the gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem. There were rumblings of discontent, and discontent people then always leads to disunity or dissension. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, as a pastor, this passage is actually, actually rather comforting to me. Because it shows that the early church all the way to this church, there are problems to be worked through. (laughs) 
right? Like we look at our church and there's like some issues happening. You may not know it, but there's always problems with because people are messy, aren't they? I'll be the first to admit I'm, I'm a mess. But people are messy, and there are issues that happen. And so this is encouraging that even the apostles didn't have it all perfectly. Because no church is perfect in this world because we are all a little messy in life. And so here in Acts, it seems that the problem at hand was disunity through either favoritism or just simply poor supervision and administration. And so some people believe it was favoritism with the differences between the Greeks and the Hebrews. But other people are like, I don't think that was it. It was just poor administration. They literally didn't have the wherewithal or the, the space to do what they needed to do. And so the problem in a nutshell, Hebrew-speaking Christ followers were most likely from the Jerusalem area. The, the Greek-speaking Christ follower were from other lands who became believers in Acts 2. If you remember Acts 2, we see the, the Pentecost happens, the Spirit comes upon tons of people, thousands upon thousands of people, and all of a sudden they just started worshiping and the church just grew there and they stayed in Jerusalem. And so the church had to figure out how to support each other, how to make sure people had food, how to make sure people were sustained and cared for. And so that's what was going on here. And among these Greek-speaking believers, there were widows who, of course, are very neglected in life. That's why Jesus focuses on them a lot. They were being overlooked. Now, that's a problem since we're told this in Acts 4. Look at what it says. All the believers were united in heart. So, so in Acts chapter 4, we see unity, don't we? Do you see that word? They're united in heart and mind. Every, everything's just going great. Isn't that the best when you're on a team or on a staff or in a family and everything's just going really well and you're like, man, it, this feels good. We're all getting along. We like each other today. All of this stuff. Unified, that is a fantastic thing in our lives. And that's what was happening. The believers were unified in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owed, owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Remember, a lot of people were in Jerusalem. They were displaced from their homes. So they were just taking care of one another. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. None. Because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give those in need. And then, of course, then right after that is the story of Ananias and Sapphira who are like, man, I want to look cool by selling my stuff. And they withheld, and God knew, and then that led to that. So from Acts chapter 4, where there's no needy people, to then the beginning of Acts chapter 6, where all of a sudden widows are being overlooked, are needed. What's going on? And the, it's going from unified in heart and mind to disunity or not unified in heart and mind. It's creating this disunity, dissension in the midst of the church. And we all know what disunity can do to our lives, can't we? We all, we all understand it. We all feel it when there's disunity. So what did the apostles do? Acts chapter 6, verse 2. So the 12 call the meeting of all the believers. So just... Come on in. Let's, let's bring it in. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. You know, what's very interesting here is that in Acts 4, the apostles were in charge of the distribution to make sure everything was taken care of. 
But because the church has grown in number, the needs of the church have also increased beyond what they're capable of as mere humans. The apostles just can't simply meet the spiritual needs of the church and also the physical needs at the same time. And they realized it. They realized that by grace, the apostles realized that they have this dilemma, that they, they aren't going to be the saviors of, of, of everybody's spiritual and physical needs at the same time. And so their dilemma is this. They've been gifted by God and commissioned by Jesus to preach, to proclaim the gospel, and to pray. But they're also seeing this, the practical needs not being met or a ball being dropped. They realize it. They admit it. They're like, we get it. We can't do it all on our own. So what should they do? And this, this right here is the tipping point we're going to focus on today. Look at what they do. So they brought everybody in, had a big old meeting with the, the believers. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word in prayer and teaching the word. This was their plan, to make sure that the practical needs of the church are met. And so they chose seven men because that most likely would have been enough at that point because people are like, well, why seven? It's just because that's probably, they're like, that will suffice in the moment. And they needed these men to be well-respected, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Why were these requirements? Well, it's actually pretty simple because when it comes to meeting the felt needs of people, you want to make sure the ones who are distributing the, the food, the money, all of this stuff, you want to make sure that they are people you can trust and people who are honest. If you're a business owner in here, you want to make sure your employees are trustworthy and honest employees, don't you? I mean, it just makes sense. When you're handling those practical needs, you want people who are trustworthy and honest. And if you're full of the Spirit, right, then the those are qualities that the Spirit works in our hearts and in our lives. Think about your life when you're younger. Uh, I know for me, one of the things I always wanted to do was lie to my parents, and I got really good at it, okay? I was not an honest child in my life because I wanted to make sure that they still liked me. And so when we're younger, but yet we mature and we grow in our faith, guess what? My initial thoughts of lying are gone and I want to be an honest person because the Spirit has been working in my heart and my life. It's nothing I've done. This is called sanctification. It's, it's us becoming more like Christ in our lives. And so we want to make sure people are full of the Spirit, make sure people are truly working, the Spirit's working in in our heart, helping us to become trustworthy, helping us to become wise in our lives and honest. People who, the, also the requirement was people who could serve in a fair and impartial way, and that's where wisdom comes in, right? You have to be wise to understand where to distribute, when to distribute, and who needs it the most in that point. That's another aspect of the Spirit just working in our hearts and in our lives. So the reason that this simple plan was a tipping point from the church is because it expanded the responsibility of the church to the other leaders so that the gospel could be preached and the felt needs could be met with unity, okay? Do you see that? 
So, so, so they're like, there's 12 apostles at this point leading the church. They expand it to seven more guys who are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. And they did this so that they could preach and pray and so that the practical needs could be met in the church in unity. That the church could all be unified under Christ. In other words, have their eyes looking to Jesus in this moment rather than being distracted by what's not happening. And so, let's look at who they chose. Acts 6, 5 through 6. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch. And yes, I had to listen to a Bible for those names, okay? That's a Bible hack. If you don't know how to pronounce a word or a name, take a Bible app out and listen to it because they've practiced. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And so that's who they chose to then take this leadership on in the church Stephen and Philip are mentioned first, most likely, because Luke knew he was going to feature them as the story of the church progresses. And in fact, at the end of chapter 6, we see Stephen's story begin, and we're going to see that next week in Acts 7. Uh, We don't really know much about the other five, but what we do know about all seven is a few things. First, all seven of them had Greek names. All of those are Greek names, and so this is very important to note because uh, not only were they men of great character and full of the Spirit, they were able to linguistically communicate with the Greek-speaking widows and the broader Greek community. And so the apostles and the people understood that many of the people coming into the church were actually Greek-speaking instead of Hebrew-speaking, and so just by sheer convenience, they're like, we should make sure that these people can communicate with those who can't communicate with us. That's one thing we do know about them. The second thing, they were uniquely suited for the role in which was delegated to them or else they wouldn't have been chosen by God and by the church. Third, we know that they were prayed for and commissioned. Uh, that's what the laying on of hands is. There's, there's no uh, really spiritual power there because they're already full of the Spirit, right? Because that was a requirement of them. And so the, the laying on of hands is a symbolic idea of like, you are, we're commissioning you to go and to serve the tables, if you will. The last thing we know is that the apostles did not impose this role on them. Did you notice in this whole story, it didn't say that the apostles were like, you guys have to do this. The apostles didn't pick these seven guys out and say, this is it, we're imposing this, whether you like it or not, you have to do this. In fact, it was the opposite. They gave the church a big say in what was going on. Even the apostles said, choose, choose from everybody, seven men, here's the requirements. They chose, and then the apostles affirmed it by commissioning them. They were chosen, and this is the point, they were chosen and willing to serve so that unity can blossom. Do you see that? They were chosen by the people, meaning they, had, they, were, they were well-liked by outsiders. They, were, they had good character. They were full of the Spirit. People understood that they could fill this role. And then they were also willing. They were willing so that unity in the church could absolutely continue to blossom. And when you have people who are ready and willing to serve for unity, guess what happens? Verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. 
the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Isn't that amazing? How is this possible? Well, it's because the apostles load, in other words, their, their job was lifted off of them, it was delegated, it was spread out to other people so that they could do what? Preach and pray. And that because of that, the message, message continued to spread. And because the message continued to spread, the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, all the way to the point where priests were becoming believers of Jesus Christ. All the way. What this shows us is that Jerusalem is being transformed. Jesus said exactly that that would happen. He said, go, we're commissioning you to, about the resurrection. So in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, this is Jerusalem right here being absolutely transformed. And the reason is, is because of that tipping point of delegation within the church so that people could serve in other ways. It's an amazing tipping point. So what does that mean for us today? We get to follow the example set for us by the early church. So when we think about Port Clinton and we think about Marblehead and we think about Oak Harbor, we think about all the areas around us, think about the tipping point of what could happen if people were ready and willing to serve. Ready and willing to step up where God has called them to in their lives. That's the question we have to talk about today. We learn from Acts 6 and history that there are many needs within the church and many things that need to be done. There are many roles that need to be filled by people who are ready and willing to serve in their life. A church does not run by staff. I am one man, and I, will, I drop balls left and right sometimes. And sometimes people walk into this building, and I see them, and I'm like, oh forgot to text them back this week. <laughs> I'm not perfect. And there are issues in this church. There are problems. But looking to Jesus, looking to Acts 6 and what God has put in place, looking at the gifts that you and I have as a church, we can all come together in unity so that it can be a tipping point in our community for the glory of God and for the sake of others. And that's what can happen here. And so I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4. The rest of the message, by the way, is going to be super practical on how you may be able to serve in this church. But Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. And so when... Think about this. So this is kind of talking about the gifts of the, of, of the Holy Spirit or roles within a church. And so you have the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What's their role? So what's our role here? It's to equip people, God's people, for works of service. This is where the big disconnect is for many people within the church. A lot of us come to church as consumers. Like, what can I take? What can I take? What can I take? And yet here, our role is to build you up so that you can serve, so that you can give back to those who need to learn about Christ, to hear about Christ, and to have their needs met. So it says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. There's that word unity there, okay? Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I love Paul talks about the, the church as a body here. He does it again in 1 Corinthians. But the body is made up of many parts. It grows and develops and functions as each part does, it work, does its work, which means that every believer not only has a part to play, but also needs a part to play. And the reasoning is, is so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. You see, people stepping up and serving in their different roles is something that's so important for the unity of the body of Christ within each context. And so ask yourself, if you're a believer, what part are you playing? What is your role that God has called you to do? What are you willing to do in life? Or what do you need to do to play so that we can experience unity here in Port Clinton? At the chapel, we have the best volunteers. I'm, I know I'm super biased, and I get it. I love each one of you. But when you walk into these doors each week, when you see things happening throughout midweek and stuff like that, it's because of most likely volunteers, people stepping up and serving week in and week out. And I'm so grateful for everybody who does that. And, and we asked just a few of our volunteers some personal thoughts on why they serve. And so I just want to give you a little glimpse of why people serve here. One person says, I serve in Chapel Kids. Yeah, give it up, Chapel Kids. Uh, because it's so important to provide opportunities for our children to learn about Jesus on their level in a fun and engaging way. I have five little kids under nine, and that's exactly what happens to, for them each week. Uh, then another person says, I find that every time I am focused on others and not on myself, especially with serving, that's where true joy is found. How true is that? Right? <laughs> when we stop looking at ourselves... True joy is felt when we serve others. I like serving at the chapel because I love being able to share the gifts God gave me to help families grow in faith. Remember, that's the building up in unity we see there. Actively participating on a team each month is a way for me to love others inside the walls and a way to share my gifts while volunteering behind the scenes. Another person says, gives me an opportunity to serve my church, which has ministered to me for so many years. So it's this idea of serving others. And then when I serve, it's an act of love that follows in the footsteps of Jesus, which is so important. And it's a way to get active in the church, and we have been blessed from meeting so many people on and off the team. A lot of people ask, well, how do I get connected at this church? Serving is a great way to start to get connected with people. And so we get here. Many of you here serve, but many of you also don't serve. Uh, We just want you to know where you can serve. So if Acts chapter 6 is truly speaking in your heart and you're like, you're you're ready for this step because that's our mission statement. We want to help people move one step closer to God and each other through Christ. So if you're at a point in your faith where you're like, you know what, my next step is giving and serving to build up the unity of the church, these are the Port Clinton needs right now. There's not a lot of them, okay? Just kidding, there's tons of them. Um, But first and foremost, chapel, kids, middle school, high school, next generation. We want to build into our next generation. And so I just, I cannot, I, again, I have little kids, so I'm very biased, and I love chapel kids. I love middle school, love high school. I'm telling you, this is our greatest need right now, okay? And a lot of you parents who your kids are out, you're gone, 
Listen, it's okay to get back into the game. And I know sitting on a floor doesn't sound fun, and I know things feel sticky. My house is just, don't touch the walls in my house. They're all sticky. I get it. But that is the next generation we want to build up. We want to teach about Jesus. We want them to come to know Christ in their hearts so that when they grow up, they can then impart that and give that to their children. So let me just, I'm just going to, huge plug for that. The Say Yes board is out there, please, if you're even interested. Next, first impressions, uh, which is our welcome center coffee greeter. How many of you have coffee right now? A lot of you? Yep, absolutely. Good. Awesome. We need people to do that. Security team, worship team, tons of volunteers, tech team, chapel group leaders, facilities maintenance, meal ministry, prayer team, event, child care. And so listen, there's tons of things to do here at the chapel. And some of you may be like, well, I don't really know where I should serve. These are some good questions to ask yourself. I don't have a lot of time to sit on the slide, so if you want to ask yourself these questions, take a picture of them. But if you're like, I don't really know what to do, good questions. What do you like to do? All right. Do you like to make meals for other people? We got a meal ministry for people who are having surgeries or babies and stuff like that. Uh, what abilities do you have? Some of you don't like kids, but you're good with kids, so figure that out. All right. What kind of experience do you have? So maybe your school, t- whatever the case may be. Uh, and then what is your personality like? Good questions just to engage with in yourself of where you're at and where God may be calling you to serve. If you want to serve, here's what we're going to do. All you have to do is text the word serve PC to the number that you see on the screen. If you don't know how to text, you open a text box. You type in the number at the top, do the serve PC in the, in the message, and hit send. You'll get a link back, and then just follow the link, okay? You'll figure it out, or if you if thumbs aren't working real well, just write serve PC on your connect card, and I personally will be following up with every single person who's interested in serving, and we're just going to start a conversation together. Where do you want to serve? How often? Stuff like that. And we will get you plugged in where you want to go. And and you know what? If it doesn't lead to anywhere at this point, that's fine too. As long as you know God is working in your heart, and at some point you're ready and willing to serve and to give back and to promote the unity of the church, that is a great step. And so just let's start a conversation together so we can get you plugged in, so we can build up this church, so that it could just quite possibly be a tipping point in our community, so that the gospel can spread, so that people can come to know Christ, and so that felt needs can be met. Like, like take that step. Move one step closer, however you would like to do that, okay? And we'll get you plugged in where God has gifted you in your life. All right. That's my plug here. So, as we leave here today, many of us want to serve because I just pressured you hardcore, okay? (laughs) That's not the point, though, all right? Don't feel pressured. Don't feel like we're going to, this church is going to be gone without you. Listen, someone else is going to take your place if you don't step up. That's just how it happens. That's how the church has happened forever. Someone else is going to take your place if you don't step in and you won't get to experience the the blessedness of serving in a church. But we do want to encourage you to serve. And as we leave here today, may we all serve with this mentality, the mentality of Christ. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. May we all adopt this mentality and this idea that, that the world's not here to serve us. As much as our culture wants us to think that. We are here to follow Jesus' footsteps, to follow the footsteps of Acts chapter 6, and to serve others and to give our lives for others. Because it concerns their eternity. Do you get that? This is not some week-to-week thing. This is an eternal situation that we're, we're in. And so may we just embrace that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your, for your grace, for your mercy, especially for your son, Jesus, who did not come to be served. He totally could have, Lord. He could have ruled and reigned here on earth. Instead, Jesus was willing to serve, to serve so much so that he gave his life for the many, for us, for those who need it. Lord, I pray we would follow his example, the apostles' example, the sevens' example, and for the thousands of years the church has been moving and growing, Lord, I pray that we would follow in their footsteps, that, God, that you would reveal to us our gifts, our abilities, so that we can give back to those who desperately need to hear the word of Christ and to experience the love of Jesus. We give you all the glory today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.